Hello, you're listening to the Ace Records podcast with myself, Pete Perfides, and I'm very happy indeed to be joined by a true legend of British music and indeed water skiing, but we'll come on to that later. Uh, she's been living her best life with inspirational panache ever since, well, ever since she was 11, when she informed her parents that she would be changing her name to Richenda Antoinette de Winterstein Gillespie, to the one on the front of the 30-plus albums she's released in one form or another since her debut long player for London Records, The Exquisite Foolish Seasons. Prior to its release, she'd already released a string of excellent singles, including the enchanting willowy folk of her debut for Pi Records, Donna Donna. She had many friends throughout this period who went on to become hugely well-known, including, of course, David Bowie, with whom she shared a manager, Tony DeFries. He wrote the song Andy Warhol for her before reclaiming it for his Hunky Dory album. As well as songs and a manager, they also shared musicians. Mick Ronson and Rick Wakeman featured on her brilliant 1973 album, Weren't Born a Man. Uh, it seems that when you meet her, you never quite forget about her, as evidenced by the fact that having not crossed paths for decades... Bob Dylan looked her up in 1997 and asked her to support him on his British tour that year. She's an accomplished actor, having starred memorably alongside Dudley Moore and Peter Cook in The Hand of the Baskervilles, and she was also the girlfriend of Art Garfunkel in Nicholas Rogue's Bad Timing and Marla's Mistress in the 1974 film Marla. And of course she was Ajar in The People That Time Forgot. Rather like her contemporary Marianne Faithful, her voice has matured almost beyond recognition over the years, and that sits very well with her lifelong love of blues music, which is what she predominantly writes and sings these days. In the United States, Essential Blues magazine wrote that it's an index of her empathy with her material that the originals blend so seamlessly with the classic covers, while Downbeat described her as a master of rhythmic subtleties with a purity of intent. Her philosophy of life might be best summed up by lines from a couple of songs from her most recent album, Under My Bed. On Walking Love Today, she sings, I believe in the light within, and indeed her positivity and joie de vivre seems to define her. And on Old School, she sings, Don't want to spend my time staring at a screen, because you can never imagine the things I've seen. Well, thankfully, she's here to help us imagine some of the things she's seen. It's my great delight to welcome Dana Gillespie. Hi there, Pete. But can I correct you already? We've hardly started. I've actually, Under My Bed is my 70th album. I, I, yes, well, we'll come to that. I didn't know whether or not, because there are... Whether it was a load of baloney. No, it's true. Well, I didn't know, because there there, there's a whole load of sort of devotion, albums of devotional music. Yeah, well, they're still, yeah. they're still yeah. albums, yes. And by the way, not that I've ever considered myself an actress. I, th- I really don't like this thing being called an actor. If I'm going to be called anything, it'll be an actress. I think well, this is a load of baloney as well. Is one allowed to swear on your podcast? Oh, yeah, swear away. So I can say it's a load of bollocks that, that actors are for men and actresses are for women. I'm old school. No, but you know, it's interesting you should say that because, you know, one one can often get in trouble for for doing what I didn't do there. So, <laughs> and now I'm in trouble for having kind of moved with the times. Oh, yeah. Who wants to be politically correct? Definitely not me. Well, I'm just trying to get through the day, <laughs> exercising a modicum of good manners. Okay, and Sometimes Pete. that's enough and sometimes Sorry. it's not. <laughs> no more wrist slashing. Let's no, <laughs> we'll no, get on to chatting instead. <laughs> as long as you're saying it a lot, me, then it's absolutely <laughs> fine. <laughs> um 
you and Paul Weller are probably Woking's most celebrated musical emissaries. Are Actually, there, there is one other. And uh, only older people will know who he is, Sir Les Reed, who wrote all those hits for Tom Jones, like Delilah and Green Green Grass, of right, all yes, of that of course, stuff. Yeah. That was Les Reed. And when I first started, the first TV shows I did, and I suppose this was 1965, or could it have been 64, I can't remember, I was in Ready Steady Goes Live. And in, and it, it was the first time that the programme had gone live. Yeah. And... Uh, the orchestra in the Ready Steady Studios was the Les Reed Orchestra. Wow. So, and he's from Woking and sadly just uh, died the other day. So yet another really? one up there in, in that great big musical orchestra in the sky. I think people often forget as well, certainly in the early days of, of pop and rock and roll, band leaders and orchestras uh, and arrangers were still very, very important people. Uh, maybe that's not really so much of a thing now. Well, definitely not now. Who can afford a big band? I remember when I made my first LP for Decca, which was 65 or 66. I'm very bad with years, and, and nerdy people may well know the dates better than me, but it was it was for the Foolish Season album when I was yeah. to Decca, and there you had a full orchestra sitting around. I mean, who could afford that now? Who's going to pay for that now? Nobody, because you can do it with one finger on your... I was going to say synthesizer, but even that dates me, whatever the technical stuff is now. If you had one available to you these days, would you use... Because, of course, you're making blues music there so maybe that's not necessary <clears throat> no but if somebody said would you come and sing a couple of numbers with a big band orchestra i would say yes i have done this sort of stuff the trouble is with a big band or or something that is orchestrated in other words with dots notes for those of you that don't know with dots in front of you um you can't deviate you can't improvise and be spontaneous yeah. and um, I know we, we'll probably get on to Jesus Christ Superstar later, but that was one example for me. It was a, I can't actually call it a rock opera, they did, but there was nothing rocky about it. It was, you know, extravaganza. But you have to sing note for note what's written. Yeah. And that's, I find that constraining. And with blues, you you can free range. But with a jazz thing or a big band, they can only play they can only play what's written in front of them and to what degree was that the case um early early on in your career recording those first few singles well the first singles i can hardly remember i do remember the f the actual very first single um which was donna donna it was a sort of weird folk song and at that time yes i did know bowie he wasn't even bowie when i first met him of course and we used to sit in a cafe in denmark street called the gioconda and nurse a cup of tea for hours to wait for anyone to come in and say do you want a bass player or we need a bass player we need a backing singer and that's what musicians did sadly denmark street tin pen alley is almost pulled down and unrecognizable but it was everyone in that street had a had publishers music publishers upstairs and downstairs in the in the in the basement were the little studios where you'd go and record your demos or in my case to go and do your first single so i arrived ready to do my first single i had donovan on guitar 
And as I walked in, they said, oh, sorry, the session's cancelled for today. Got to book it next week because the engineer's just blown his brains out in the studio. So they didn't let me go in. I already had, that was my first clue that guys that live in studios have a troglodyte existence and never see the light of day. Oh, my word. So, but anyway, when we finally came to do it, that was my first single on Pi. And I, I, I learned very early on that, you know, the thing to do is to write your B-sides. Not, not the, I mean, I wrote... A-sides too, but I then went on and did, I think, two singles by The Hollies, and I always wrote the B-sides. And were you, that's a, because you were still a teenager at this point, so that's I a... I must re- have been 15. To, to, to have that sense, that kind of business acumen. Oh, I had no business, I well, had music acumen. Well, to, to even know that if you wrote a B-side, you'd get the money from it. Well, I I never expected ever to make money from yeah. from anything, but I you know at that time Bowie and I both realized that the only way to get our songs across was to sing them ourselves. I mean, I'd seen I I started off life actually before that as a drummer. I had my own band and and I could see that I didn't really want to be humping gear everywhere to gigs and and after about a week of doing a few gigs with my band I don't I can't even remember what we whether we had a name or not I the singer didn't turn up one day and I knew that I could stand in and sing and somebody else could drum was this, was, am I right in thinking this was a show that Millie Smalls was on the bill for yes it was called Big Beat 64 although it was 1963 I think they were looking in it it was at the vaudeville theater was it was it actually Millie you stepped in for no, no, no. She right. was doing her own thing. No, it was right. one of those marvellous variety shows that they don't do anymore. I mean, I know because I loved those package tours. Yeah. I, I used to do, I suppose I was 16. I used to do those uh, summer co- those concerts at the end of a pier in Great Yarmouth, in my case. And you'd go on and I, I was with the Holly, the Holly's The Who, PJ Proby and Tom Jones. And the I Holly's was who wrote you a song or whose who song you covered. Yes, well. I covered their, yeah. their thing. So I liked like these package shows. It was a package show and there was a... There was a... It's funny you said that. I interviewed Marianne Faithful. She said the same thing, uh, that it was uh, it was just lovely to have the company as well. Yes. And she said that out of all the bands, the Hollies were the most polite to her. Well, I mean, I have, I stepped out for a bit with the guitarist Tony Hicks and used to sort of put my feet up and have a lot of laughs with Graham Nash in the dressing room. But I mean, I was only 15 then, Um you know, but you certainly grow up, grew up. I learned. I used to get to this gig carrying my guitar um, and hitchhiking. How can you do that these days? And because I had no way, other way to get there, I didn't drive. And sometimes, because I think I got paid twenty-five quid, or it may have been fifteen quid, for doing the concert. It wasn't enough to pay for a bed and breakfast and the train back. So I used to crawl under the tarpaulin covers of the little boats that would be parked underneath the. Britannia Pier, sleep there, sometimes frozen, and and hitch back the next day. You know, if my parents would have known, but that's how you learn. You've got to do funny kind of gigs, but it was the package tours. And there was a great band called the Remo Four were peering down the road. That was Tony Ashton, which turned into Ashton Gardner and Dyke. And when you're with these, when you're with guys, they're mates, you hang out. Otherwise... If you're going to sing with bands you don't know, you're kind of on your own. And you like you clearly you're comfortable in with other musicians, other male musicians. You seem to sort of, uh, and even though you come from by your own admission a sort of relative, a sort of privileged background, yeah. you know, 
the sleeping on the tarpaulin, all that stuff. There is a, a sort of hint of self-pity on, on your features as you kind of no, toss because, in those details. No, you learn. And I'm just sad that people can't hitchhike anymore. I mean, even... Who would you travel with? Can you remember some of the people that picked you up? Oh, once I do remember. I got as far as Mildenhall, where there's all these air bases. I know that because years later I did a tour singing with a trio in the in the, in the the air bases. And it was a, it was a carload of, it, what must be said, whiskey passing the bottle drinkers from an American <laughs> RAF base. They got me there, but I kept thinking, oh, I'm not sure if I want to be in a car with whiskey drinkers because I've yeah. never really liked... I don't like the taste of alcohol. No. It's not a holier-than-thou self-righteous thing. No. I, it, I can tell you if chocolate got you high, I'd be high as a kite all yeah, day long. I'm the same. Um, I just don't like the taste of alcohol. Um, so I was a bit worried about that. But, you know, I always used to give long-haired people a lift. The moment I passed my my test, a week after my 17th birthday, if I was driving to Norfolk, where my people from my mother's side of the family lived, I would always stop for a, you know, kind of long-haired hippie because they looked like they needed to get somewhere. I, I don't think I'd stop for anyone now because you don't know if they're going to knife you. Yeah. This is a sad reflection on what's happened in today's world. And the long-haired people were presumably, by and large, the gentle people, were oh, they? Oh, yes. Yeah. All sort of gentle dope-smoking, peace and love, and here's a flower. Yeah. Yeah, that's my kind of world. It is. It's my kind of world as well. I sort of, uh, that reminds me that, of course, uh, uh, David Bowie also had long hair when you first met him. Didn't he, didn't he sort of take your hairbrush off you and start brushing <laughs> well, your hair? many people know that story, but I was absolutely mad about blues from, very, from the age of 13, and the best place to see it was the Marquee Club. Mm. So... I'd be down in the Marquee Club whenever whenever the Yardbirds were playing. I'd go and see the Who. I think I even saw them when they were still the high numbers, actually. And there were some bands that were great. Gary Farr and the T-Bones was my second fave band. And one night, I went to see Gary Farr and the T-Bones, and the support act was David Jones. I can't remember whether he was the lower third or the Manish Boys. Hmm. I'm a bit hazy about it. Bowie fans will pick me yeah, up on that. I'm not going to attempt to No, guess. don't even. No. I think they were maybe Manish Boys. And at the end of the night, I'm at, I, in those days, I had some black leather trousers on. I was big busted anyway at that time, so I kind of looked quite... I was a hot-looking chick, and I had waist-length peroxide blonde hair, and I'm brushing my hair at the back of the marquee, and David comes up and takes my Mason Pearson hairbrush out of my hand, and he says, can I come home with you tonight, as he carried on brushing. So, of course, I had to say yes. I mean, I wanted to as well. Well, yes, I, many would, obviously. But um, Nowadays they would, but, you know, I was 14, so it was quite a risky thing. I had to be at school the next day. So we walked home to South Kensington. I, I always lived in South Ken and uh, got him up to the fifth... I mean, my parents owned the whole house. Yeah. It was a big house, five floors. Got him up to my top floor where I lived. We had a single bed, of course. Because I mean, I was a schoolgirl. Yeah. Uh, there's no need for me to actually go talk about what went on then. But you know, from that moment on, we were always friends. But in the morning, the funny thing was, and he had this long yellow lemon hair that was a bit in a sort of Veronica Lake style. As I thought, I'd better get him out of the house before my parents get up. And as we were going, creeping down the stairs, out come my parents from the bedroom. So I introduced them. I said, this is, you know, David and blah, blah, blah. And they shook hands and off David went. And I had to 
you know, get my school bag and go off. And my father said to me, gosh, I thought that was a girl because it was unheard of to look like and unseeable, actually, for guys to have this hairstyle. The newspapers were always full of the Beatles had long hair, but their hair hardly touched their no, collars. No, this he, is shoulder length. Well, he was famously on a television programme having formed some kind of... Uh, yeah. Possibly fictional society for people for the protection of people with long hair or something. Yes, I remember. I saw that actually at the I, time. I, yes, I saw it at the time, and then somebody showed it to me the other day because a lot of the things I saw and did at the time have slightly gone into the ether. Well, that's a funny thing because uh, I, I I was going to ask you uh, about um, something else around this time. Now, obviously, you know, I spent quite a bit of yesterday sort of brushing up a little for this sort of <laughs> interview oh gosh and uh but um i'd promise i've got a 16 year old uh daughter who's kind of obsessed with music and i'd promised her for she'd she'd kind of heard she'd heard about the don't look back d.a pennebaker's documentary for people who don't know fly on the wall documentary which i'm in well you preempted my question <laughs> okay because um and here I am, so I was thinking, oh God, I've been waiting for, to watch Don't Look Back with her for ages. I mean, you know, what, you know, it's you dream of your daughter coming in and say, Can you watch Don't Look Back with me, Dad? So I was like, Okay, well, yeah, I've gonna, we'll put this on hold and I will go into the front room and we'll watch Don't Look Back. And then I sort of realized that maybe you are in it. I'm not very much in it. I must say I hadn't learned about I mean, I was never very pushy in my life. I'm not a pushy type. But and Marianne Faithful is somehow managed to get in a bit yes. more than I, I was in. But I was, the times I was with Dylan, you know, they're kind of quite private times. But there's one scene where he arrives at the Albert Hall. He called me and said, meet me at the Albert Hall. And in those days, you could just walk in the stage door nobody questioned things <laughs> and I'm sitting on an empty stage at the side of the stage and he walks in and there I am and I'm where I've got my peroxide yellow hair yeah. and I'm in jeans and a black top and black suede Chelsea boots the obligatory outfit yeah, for the beatnik era you know don't forget I even marched in a CND march when I was about 13 probably still wearing the same kind of clothes and if you if you get Don't Look Back on a DVD, there's a thing called commentaries, those extras that you oh, get. Yeah, yeah. And if you watch the commentaries, there's a there's um, Dylan's friend Bob Newth is talking to Penny Baker over the whole film. There's a dialogue yeah. going yeah. on, and and when it comes to that scene where Dylan's walking into the Albert Hall. Um, they're saying to each other in the commentaries bit, oh, there's Dana Gillespie. She sings while she surfs. They somehow confused my water skiing yeah. with surfing, but they're American, so what do they know? And you were doing them both at the same time, <laughs> <laughs> which would have been quite an act. Yeah, well, I did actually for a programme called Gadzooks, which I think Bowie did too, but we weren't on at the same time. It was a BBC thing. Um, BBC Two had just started. It was either Gadzooks or The Beat Room. And, mm. and and Barry Langford, the director, got me on bloody, on bloody water skis, miming to Donna Donna, I think. But to go back to the Dylan thing, mm. what, to Penny Baker and Newarth are talking, and the, not only did they get my, my sport wrong, but then he said, oh, yeah, she gave me her... 
her LP, It's Really Good. So I must have just made Foolish Seasons and was wow. very proud of that. And th when I hear things like that, and Dylan once said to me, I mean, after I did the tour in 1997, he said, I said to him, why did you ask me to be the opening act on the tour? He said, because I've always really liked your songwriting. Now, when you get that out of his bobness, that's pretty cool. And oh, uh, that's what an incredible thing to hear. Yeah, it and was nice. So, I found uh, an interview uh, with you uh, conducted by Keith Keith Oltham from uh, in, <laughs> in the New Musical Express, dated 9th of July, nineteen sixty-five, and it's all in its head. The head heading is Bob Dylan's not a singer at all, says his friend Dana. Do you remember this? Well, I, I used to know Keith Oltham quite well. I mean, when you, in those days, record companies had enough money to have fantastic record receptions, and it was a social world. You went and anyone who had a single out, even you went to their release. So I'm sure I knew Keith Oltham, and but I never the headline. I can't even remember. Do you want me to remind you a couple of things that you apparently said? Oh God! Yeah. Okay. While you're talking about Bob, obviously, he hides his true feelings completely and never really lets you know what he feels. Uh, some people think that he was very poor once, but in fact his parents are quite wealthy. At heart, he is a kind of a tramp who would rather do his travelling in comfort and enjoys kicking conformity and convention in the teeth. You're hugely articulate for someone so young, I've got to say. Uh <laughs> Do you want me to continue? Well, no, but I mean, that headline of he's not a singer, I suppose I might have been... I mean, You're saying he's a poet, basically. Well, I guess so, but it kind of came out a bit funny. But I have got quite a nice story. Do you want to hear the story about how I met him? Yeah. Because, of course, everyone used to think I stepped out with Donovan. Not true. Donovan just happened to be... He was going out with a girlfriend of mine. You know, girls always have girlfriends as sort of mate to go to a club with or something. So we'd I'd somehow heard, and probably from somebody like Keith Altham, that there's a record reception at the Savoy for Dylan. So on we go, knowing that Donovan was going to be there too, because they started to call Donovan Dillivan, you know, which was <laughs> awful, actually. And in fact, Dylan was sort of slightly put him down a bit, didn't think yeah, much of him. it's kind of uncomfortable watching in the film. Yeah, well... It, yeah, anyway, it is what it is. Mm. And I think Dylan was probably sort of pissed off having to permanently answer the same yeah, questions. Of course. Anyway, so I go I go to the record reception and he's there with Joan Byers, who's conveniently being put on a plane very shortly to go back to America. And and Dylan um, spotted me and we start talking. And there's a spark, but, you know, he had to go off somewhere else and he went off and went somewhere else to do what he was doing. But I'd heard that there was a huge reception at the Dorchester that night. CBS was giving a mega reception. And... Um, that pe I knew that people liked Tony Bennett and the birds because all the people that were signed yeah. um, were, were there. So I said to my mate Sarah, the one who knew Donovan, I said, we've got to go to this. I must meet Dylan again. So I, what was I, 15, I suppose? So we go to the Dorchester and I see the side entrance where the cars are dropping the big celebs off. Only people weren't called that celebrities in those days. That stupid symbol didn't really exist. Yeah. You either were a music, you could either sing or play yeah. music or not. So I try to get in and two bouncers stopped me from getting in. They said, no, you haven't got the ticket. You haven't got well, I didn't have the right ticket. So I went outside and I said to Sarah, I'm not going to be beaten by this. So I said, come on, follow me. And I walked into the Dorchester as if I owned the place and I decided to follow um, a waiter who was carrying a tray of 
food or something and we followed him he disappeared into a door and so we disappeared behind behind him and we were in a rabbit warren underneath the Dorchester and all dark sort of you got to know your way around there and I said to Sarah right let's go through this door opened the door and it was it was a door that led straight into where the main reception was on everyone was drinking it was about five or six steps up from the reception so I opened this false mirrored door everyone kind of turned to look at me I mean the people that were around there yeah and I could see the bouncers on the other side of the room had so suddenly spied me so you're close. And, yeah. and they were starting to make their way through the really crowded room and as I went down the steps I could see them getting closer and just as they could have come to nab me Dylan saw me and he stepped in he didn't see that this was going on he yeah. just stepped in took me in his arms kissed me hello and the bouncers had to leave <laughs> and it carried on since then so I got I got divinely intervened and he saved me but he always was a gentleman Always, I think he was clearly. I'm mean, looking at that film. What you realise is he's a gentleman with people who he kind of feels are sort of almost worthy recipients of his gentlemanliness. Yeah, but um, but he doesn't suffer fools gladly. That's no, especially if it's sort of interviewers and things. Um, yeah, and actually, when <coughs> when it came to uh, doing the tour in '97, I actually didn't see him till two days before the tour started. It was all booked through agents and everything. And I get a call two days before the tour started. Um, and he said, hello, this is Bob. Now, I hadn't seen him for about 15 years because I'm not somebody that rings up and stays in touch with people no. I work with. I just get on with my life. But I didn't ask which Bob I could have done. You but you know which Bob it is, his Bobness. So he said, I'm coming around to see you. And uh, he didn't ask me, was I married or did I have 10 children or nothing? He just turned. He said, I'll be there in half an hour. How did he know where to find you? Um, I suppose the, uh, his agent might have. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Hey, he can get whatever he wants. I'm sure, but I'm just so curious. anyway, so they were his 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 mind had deposited on my door, and we talked for four hours. He lay on my sofa. I said, "What can I offer you?" So he offered. He he drank fennel tea. It would have been something stronger in the old days, but probably. And so we talked four hours, uh, twenty five years or twenty years, into these four hours, and that was pretty lovely actually. And. Um, you make it sound very natural, like you just picked up where you left off. Not quite. I mean, we we had we didn't exactly pick up in everything where we left off from the sixties. But <laughs> yes, I mean, I but I had a funny sort of thing that happened, and it was when I was with with Main Man, and we'd all moved to America, and I had to leave Jesus Christ Superstar. So that was, must have been seventy three, seventy four. Maybe we had all moved over, and I was <clears throat> I was staying with. David Bowie and his then wife Angie we were all in the Sherry Netherlands having a whale of a time nobody slept for a week I mean it was just party it was marvellous times and uh, I was booked to sing for a week at Reno Sweeney's and on the last night was the big kind of um, kind of night with all the stars coming to see me perform which was Bowie Bette Midler uh, Raquel Welsh. I mean, I've got a list of them all that came to this. It was a benef gala thing. And I felt really ill. I'd got flu and, and I, I was not looking forward to the gig that night. And I go down to the place for a sound check. And at 10.30 in the morning, there's a tramp. It looked like a tramp standing, getting a ticket, ordering a ticket for the night's show. 
and he had sort of fluff on his face. It was Dylan. He was getting a ticket. <laughs> so he turned around. He said, I'm coming to see you tonight. My heart sank wow. because my voice was so bad. Anyway, because um, I really was tired from the tour. So I, and also I was with the guy that I lived with for five years and I was I've got to admit to thinking, oh, I wish I could I could have ditched him. It would have been nice to go off with yeah. Dylan again. But I, I didn't do that, oh. as it turns out, because I'm quite loyal in my old fashioned way. So I told where, where are we in the timeline now? Maybe about 71 70, or something? No, this 70? must have been about 74 when right. Main Man was kind of big on right, Park okay, Avenue. Yeah. And they'd had advertisements every week for weeks in the New York Times, pictures of me bending over, picking up a black pussy, as in a pussycat, until yeah. somebody complained, thinking there might be some ulterior motive to I only picked it up because I like cats, and there was a cat walking across the studio, <laughs> and it turned out to be a good picture. And I was in rather an unusual pose. I mean, right, anyway, yeah. I, get the I, I digress. So... I told our sound man, I mean, our, our security guy, who was quite an infamous man at that time called John Binden, hmm. only because everyone thought he'd had an affair with Princess Margaret. I'd introduced the two of them years before. Anyway, I'm slightly digressing. I told John Binden, don't let anybody into the dressing room. And he said, OK, because I felt so ill. And before the gig started, this tramp-looking guy comes up and says to Binden, can you tell Dana that Robert Zimmerman is here? And Bindon says, I don't care if you're Bob fucking Dylan, you can fuck off. Because <laughs> he didn't realise who it was that was speaking to him. Sorry if I sweared, but I have to because that's how the story went. And um, and my the guy I was with at the time witnessed this because he was also standing outside the dressing room door. Anyway, it's God, quite a funny The things you must see if you're Bob Dylan, that's kind of, uh, that's that's well up there. Well, that's it. That's incredible, though, isn't it? But you sort of uh, so we're in the we're like you say, nineteen seventy-four. Well, I've got to quickly first of all find out yes uh, how, why you were in a position to be introducing Princess Margaret. To, 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 where where where, <laughs> where was this? Oh uh, well, on the island of Mystique. I first started going there with my parents in nineteen seventy when there's only about five or six houses on the island, very little electricity, and. It was pretty mosquito-ridden because that's what the name Mustique means. And it was owned by this very colourful man called Colin Tennant, Lord Glen Connor. And I was at school with his sister and I went there with my parents. And uh, so I started going there. And even when I was in Jesus Christ Superstar, because I had a bad knee because I was nearly died in an avalanche when I was 15 in my snow skiing days because I was in one of the junior snow ski teams for Britain um, I every time I went to the tropics as in the West Indies walked in sand my knee got better so that's why I used to keep going back there right okay and yeah. then years later I, I started the must eat blues festival which was 25 years ago and is that still? Does that still continue? It still continues. I'm going out there on Saturday. Because it's January. It's every January. That yeah. It well, I ran it for twenty years, and I made and I recorded an album from the festival every year. Yeah. I mean, now it's it's. It, when I was there in the early days, there weren't roads. It was it was mud. Princess Margaret went there, and she was kind of very relaxed. You know, okay, you knew she was royal. You didn't sort of say how you're doing, ma'am, because you used to have to call her ma'am. Uh, you wait till she asked you a question. But it, she was quite relaxed and informal. But then I had the idea, you know, why this great place and with there's a bar there called Basil's Bar, and Basil had started a charity on for to raise money for the next island. 
island of St Vincent to get the kids going to school. So I said, listen, why don't we start a blues festival? We'll do it a charity thing. I'll get everyone to come and play for free, which they did. I mean, who's going to say no to 15 days in the Caribbean in January when the weather is awful everywhere else in the world? And so it ran for 20 years with me making an album. And the album is what some of the money was raised was by me producing this album. And on one of them, I managed to get Mick Jagger. So I can actually say I produced Mick Jagger. That's right. That wasn't too long ago, was it? No, that well, after 20 years, Basil then sort of wanted to carry on the festival but he sold the bar and he didn't want to have any more albums made he probably quite rightly said who buys albums well I still do but I you know but I like I still got a car with a cassette machine in it so that's how old fashioned I am so I stepped back from it but it's this they've just started it it runs for 15 days every year and it's um it's got so I'm going in for the 25th anniversary for the last few days with Dino Baptiste, my piano player. I guess you know, thinking about you know these, if you connect with people on a musical level, which is what all these people are at the end of the day, and you know some of them are hugely famous and some of them are not, but I think that seems to be, to, to me as a sort of you know once removed observer of your life yeah. it seems to me that that's sort of the key to your relationships with musicians and they might be well known or they might not be well known but if you're re- relating to them on that level then it everything becomes easy and informal well actually yes it well it does for me but you know for me music is my god and it has been since i can remember and so i'm not shy in front of i don't care whether you're the queen or or a road sweep it's all the same it music is something to do with touching the heart mm. and and so i've always had a lot of musician friends it's also the reason why by the way i've never wanted to marry a musician because when you go on the road with musicians what what goes on the road stays on the road i know what it's like i i know all the married musicians they're all you know when you're on the road something happens to guys so but I, they're like my brothers i'm either a mother hen or a brother when we're on the road okay you're not obviously i'm not going to ask you you're not going to tell me about instances in which that's happened but what I, <laughs> what i think you probably can tell me because it's kind of is uh, do you know any musicians especially i guess well i'm thinking about male musicians for whom that isn't the case, for whom they are just sort of somehow like almost superhuman and do not stray? Well, I don't I don't know because in the 60s and 70s, none of the guys that I was out touring, doing gigs with, none of them were married. I mean, it's very rare that I've worked with guys that have had stable relationships. Yeah. Strange enough, Jake Zeitz, my guitarist, got married four months ago to a girl... Um, I introduced him to, so now I've got a married man in the band, which is very rare. Mostly musicians are kind of freewheelers, actually, yeah. or maybe they've got the little woman at home. But it's not a role that women can reverse. If the little woman happens to be the musician or you want to have children, yeah. you can't because women like to do a good job. So in whatever they're doing, most women do. So how can you have children and then go off on the road and leave kids with, okay, you can be Madonna and take nannies and things, but, mm. you know, my kind of music, we don't make that kind of money. Well, it was all new. And, you know, the, this, you know, post-rock and roll, I think you had a situation where, you know, you had, you had the first sort of, I don't think anyone had really looked far enough ahead to work out that, 
you know, especially guys, if they went on tour, but then maybe they became parents, then, you know, suddenly it all gets a bit messy. And I remember seeing an interview because I collect old music magazines. So I remember <laughs> seeing an interview in Disc and Music Echo where they did a sort of feature on sort of rock wives who get left behind. And it was the most melancholy sort of feature you could read. I remember um, Graham Nash's wife. It was a really interesting time because he it, he was about to just go and st- commence an affair with Joni Mitchell, and uh, and many others, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Um, and <clears throat> you know, he's what I can't remember what she was called, but his wife just sounded so fed up and upset, and like this was not the life she had signed up for. I don't think anyone realises, you know, remind me which city they come from, the Hollies. The Hollies, Manchester. Manchester, okay, it's, I know it was somewhere up north. Mm. And um, I don't think, you know, you, you maybe they married, look at Cynthia Lennon, I mean, who yeah. there's a very good e- example, you know, they marry when they're way too young. I mean, nobody should get married in their teens, in my opinion, or probably not in their 20s either. Um, but then I come from a family with a father who always said, if you've got a choice of going to a wedding or a funeral, don't go to the wedding, go to the funeral, because at least you'll know what the outcome is. So I've always been very <laughs> jaded about this state of holy matrimony. But, you know, you're growing up, and for a lot of musicians, suddenly if they become famous, then they've moved on to a whole new life. Their life is no longer in syncopation with the first love that they had they've already gone somewhere else and it's worse for the little woman tucked at home she's probably got a child or something and the father's out on the road i mean it just bands touring and fidelity doesn't really go together so you asked me did i know any that were like that probably no no <laughs> and you were and you were having by the sound by the sounds of it you were just having so much fun i was having um, a great time i didn't want to get married no um and, but, and, you know, I was in a man's world, but I had the the luxury of being a woman, so I had sort of bonuses, or it was a win-win situation, actually. And you were the right person, the right age at the right time, because to be in, in London, which was seemed to be like operating in a different decade to the rest of the country... Yeah, do you know, nobody, nobody can understand how fabulous it was to be in the 60s in London, where the clubs were happening, the music was happening, people, you know, you had to work hard to get music in. I mean, it was difficult to get LPs or sing, where you could get the singles, obviously, you could go into a record store, but if you had a passion for jazz or blues or whatever, or skiffle, there was... There wasn't so much choice like there is now. I mean, nobody cares about anything any longer. And even if people are, let's say somebody's had a hit, maybe it's, let's say, Miley Cyrus, 10 years down the line, the young people have gone on to something else. What I've found is that if you were a blues or a jazz fan in the 60s, you stayed a blues fan for the or rock fan for the rest of your life. People weren't so fickle then. There was less choice. And, and yeah, you're... Uh, Evidently, and also what I've noticed is that even with artists who maybe started off doing blues and sort of diversify, blues was almost like the kind of secret society. So if I think about artists like Long John Baldry, who would who would go and whose big hits would be sort of mainstream ballads. Poor old, he was always known as Ada Baldry. Poor old Ada. Why without, Ada? Well, well. 
campers soldiers mate but i mean it was you know it's like elton always gave all his entourage you know one's called sharon and one they've all got names mm. it's a camp thing um so she was she was always known as ada baldry great i love john long john baldry's singing but he went and had that hit with let the heartaches begin mm. and you got to live with it for the rest of your life yeah. awful i mean nice but suddenly had to get into a sort of a suit and do venues that he'd rather not he didn't seem to take it too seriously certainly by the 70s when he ended up on Casablanca records you know he'd sort of he'd kind of gone back to doing much bluesier stuff and to hell with the consequences yeah but I mean the thing about blues when you said it's a secret society in a way it still is today it's never been mainstream and you know while I'm holding a microphone in my hand I've got to get this off my chest said the actress but all the awards for the Ivers and Basker and all these things in the music business they all talk about you get awards for every type of music as well as folk and jazz and mm. contemporary and whatever never for blues occasionally I write in a furious email I'm ignored I have never seen an award in Britain for blues and I just don't understand it because without the blues which as we know is the mother of all western music in a way you wouldn't have had all these bands yeah. like yeah. the well, the Stones or the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd. All everyone started with the blues because it was so damn easy. Three chords on a on a probably a Spanish nylon string guitar. If you're a 13 year old sitting in your room, you could you could play a song. Suddenly you could do something. Well, so even if people like you know Jimmy Page and so forth, if they moved on. That seemed to be the entry point. And so you had people... I mean, I was thinking about watching Don't Look Back yesterday and just seeing people dotted around the room like John Remborn, who... Oh, he was fabulous. Wasn't he just? Yeah. There was Remborn, Bert Yanch and Davy Graham were the sort of the three that cornered the folky world. Mm. And I was, I was doing the folk world because I couldn't afford a band. So I would go out... Bowie and I both were always known for strumming 12 strings because if you've got 12 strings, and you're not that brilliant a guitarist it's a fatter sound yeah. so people think you sound a bit better than you are so I'd go out and strum and do folk clubs not terribly well I shouldn't think when I think back at you know some of the play I used to sometimes do the odd Paul Simon or Ewan McColl song or anything that I could get my hands on so Les Cousins Yes, Those places. <laughs> that's Troubadour. a place, by the way, for people who don't know, rather oh, yeah, than, so, yeah, than a person. Le Cousin. Yes, and, and the Troubadour. But my first, somebody sent me, Big Joe Louie, I think it was, sent me a, a poster, a picture of a poster that somebody sent to him of a gig I did in 1965 in East Dereham. So I'd go on with, you know, wherever anyone was nuts enough to book me, one of my first ever's was the opening of a garage in Taunton. You get your 15 quid, you somehow get that, probably in my case, hitching. You strum away and... Uh, I read about this garage in Taunton and I'd like to sort of zone in on that for a second, <laughs> if you don't mind. Um, so you t so you're, are we talking about a garage where, like a petrol station a garage? A petrol station, was a new one was opening and they decided to lure the punters in by having... A few acts perform, and did you play on the forecourt or? I can't. Do you know, I, can't, <laughs> I can't remember where my foreplay was. Whether it was forecourt or in, it was probably in the back. I don't know. It's so long ago. I, but I played some pretty weird places in my life. Yeah, I mean, I just wish I had a TARDIS. I wish I was <laughs> just kind of strolling by, and as I look up and see 
Danny Gillespie singing on a petrol station forecourt in Taunton. That would be quite a thing to... Uh, <laughs> that, that would be scorched in my memory forever. Oh, I've sung in some weird places. I used to sing... I mean, well, I'd just passed my driving test and I was just 17 in my little Aston... No, not Aston Martin, my... Uh, Austin uh, A35, which was a lovely little car, cost me 90 quid. And I used to sing a few songs every night in three different, four different clubs in London, the Crazy Horse Saloon. They were kind of strip joints. They were topless barmaids. If my parents could have seen me... Well, your mother seems by, by, to have been a very tolerant soul. Both I mean, of my are. parents were very, very wise. Yeah, they, they were great great people and they let me move from the top floor in the house to the basement in, in where I lived in South Kensington and from the, when I was 15 so and I managed to persuade them to let me leave school at that age when it was still legal to leave at 15 and I had a piano and Bowie gave me a bass guitar I had something called a Vortexian recording machine um, which won't mean anything to anybody now but it cost Quite a bit then it was, but you could, you could over, you could double track. Unheard of in the early sixties. Like on these like Revox type. Yes, things. but it was before Revox. Right, it right. was huge. Yeah. I mean, it was massive, and so I had, and I had my drum kit. Guys would come over. People, we'd, we'd write songs. Bowie would write, or you know, and later on it, it was. Well, quite... I'm going to ask you about that, but before I ask you a specific thing about yeah. Bowie and his songwriting, um, if. If I if I were to wheel in a drum kit now, would you still be able to? No, no I could probably gone? do congas all right, but you know, no, okay. no. But I I had the best drum teacher in the world. All drummers from Britain or from London in those days would have known Frank King because he wrote for Downbeat, and I used to trawl. Even when I was 13, I'd get on a bus and go and drool in front of the drums in Drum City, which was a shop on Shaftesbury Avenue. And they had a sign in it that said, Drum Teaching. And I went round, and he was right behind the Windmill Theatre, Frank King. And he was very friendly with Buddy Rich. So he would take me off to see Buddy Rich. I saw Buddy Rich so many times. It's sort of in the afternoon, was that right? Yes, yeah, at the rehearsals and things. Yeah. He used to be on the, what I'd call the Hippodrome. I don't know what it's called now in uh, Leicester Square. Square. Right. And Frank King was also the drummer in Cracker Jack. You're meant to shout Cracker Jack. Oh, Cracker Jack, yes. sorry. In the TV studios. So I went down to see the TV studios while he drummed. He was the most marvellous drum teacher. And was he not, uh, Buddy, I mean, obviously Buddy Rich is kind of sort of infamous for his lack of interpersonal skills. Was he nice to you? He didn't even look at me. Oh, I like was, it. you know, what was I, 13? Yeah. I was sitting at the side, you know, just... Astounded, and it was actually probably, you know, I know there's that famous Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich. They do a sort of yeah. dual battle. Buddy Rich was phenomenal, and I saw him many times later on when he was on at Ronnie Scott's for two weeks because Ashton Gardner and Dyke, who I adored as a band with their hit Resurrection Shuffle with the support act. So I mean, I I saw very early on. If I can't be as good as Buddy Rich, I might as well give up the drums while I'm still ahead and concentrate on singing and my useless guitaring. If you only ever had to hang around for the rest of your life with drummers, guitarists or bassists, which would you choose? Ooh, probably not a bass player because everyone knows that if there's a solo, <laughs> the audience falls asleep during a bass solo. It's always a sort of joke in the, yeah, in the musician thing. I suppose... 
Well, I've known quite a few in the biblical sense, as Lionel Bart used to say, drummers, um, because I've always liked men of rhythm. But I guess a guitarist is more useful to me right. to hang out with because you can get more songwriting done. Right. A guitarist is can go out on his own and do a gig. A drummer is useless without somebody to play with. That's very true. Um, uh, I was going to briefly ask you, you, you mentioned sort of being around uh, constantly writing songs. You were writing lots of songs. Bowie was writing lots of songs. Didn't you hear Life on Mars? was oh, No, Space Oddity, within an hour of its creation. Within half an hour of its creation. He called me up. He was staying around the corner. And he said, I'm in South Ken. And, and he was at a... a he had a girlfriend there, heard her flat, and he said, I've just written this song. I want to come over and play it to you now. And and he was there within half an hour. And I was in my place in the basement where there were all my instruments with my old mate, Gerard Mankovich, who's quite a well-known rock pop photographer. And he came down and he played Space Oddity to us. And then years later in America seeing when whenever Bowie did Space Oddity in the Diamond Dogs show which of course sadly never came to England mm. but I, it had to be one of the best live shows you've ever seen whenever I'd be sitting in the audience if I was going to see the show and I'd be sitting next to Angie his then wife and then there's that line in Space Oddity tell my life, wife I love her very much and Angie would grab, grab my hand and look kind of moved oh. he, I don't know who he was thinking of when he actually wrote it but it's a nice line absolutely and I don't think I realised no I definitely didn't realise what an iconic song that would be how the synchronicity of that and the moon landing and everything how it would shape his then career because it did from that moment on well you know hindsight's a beautiful thing and yeah. um it makes us all a bit smarter but um you know i sort of think about that sometimes with um i remember i once interviewed uh chaz hodges from chaz and Dose, oh, no yeah. longer with us and, rabbit, uh, rabbit 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 yeah he said uh uh, Paul McCartney was one of the f he was one of the first people that Paul McCartney played Yellow Submarine to and it just completely bewildered him because yes. well imagine living in a world where, where Yellow Submarine doesn't exist and uh, you're suddenly presented you know without that what it has gone on to be you know, it's hard to be put on the spot sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, God knows why they wrote Yellow Submarine, but I think David Bowie was very clever to kind of move in onto the alien world and yeah. the star thing because nobody else had done it. And God knows it was a step up from the laughing gnome. But, you know, he, he the moment he... Actually, for me, the moment his whole musical direction changed was when Mick Ronson stepped into his world because suddenly he didn't have to have every song sounding folky and strummy. He had a lead guitarist who could give it a stamp that would change the sound. Absolutely. And I can, I can sort of see why, you know, your, your musical worlds intersected in a way that sort of seems to make a lot of sense to me because um, thinking about some of your sort of early compositions at that time, I'm thinking about maybe Mother Don't Be Frightened. Um, <laughs> very theatrical, you know, and you are clearly someone who, you know, a sort of theatrical person. And Not really. Well, sort of in terms yeah. of the, your, you were sort of comfortable on a stage. I yes, think I am very comfortable I mean. on a stage, yes. Um, but these are kind of those some of those early compositions of yours that sort of never knew. You know, they they're kind of meant they're, they're kind of songs that really deserve an audience. 
And Bowie was at that point of intersection between musical theatre and rock, and it was these were kind of ill-defined boundaries at the time. Well, we were both floundering in a way. I think both of us had had about ten managers or agents or whatever before Tony DeFries and Main Man. Well, it was actually... Bowie who found him and then he called me up and he said listen I have found the guy who should manage us I really think he's right and I mean I used to be signed to Decker Bowie was on DRAM which was a Decker subsidiary we moved in similar worlds both made terrible films or little part anything anything to get a gig and both of us auditioned for hair Hmm. and we both got turned down for hair probably just as well but actually the music was good fun in those days so um, I knew that uh, when he said that he'd found somebody who could be a great manager, I knew that he knew what he was talking about. And I walked into the office, which was in Regent Street, where Tony DeFries was, with a, another man called Lawrence Myers, who had a company called Gem. And they and and I I instantly adored this man, Tony DeFries. But I've always been a sucker for somebody who comes up and says, there, there, let me take care of everything. Who Who would not be a sucker for that? Well, exactly. And, of course, for about three, four, four years probably, maximum five, Main Man was riding on the crest of an amazing wave. And I was, you know, the songs that you mentioned, like Never Knew or... There was one called Back to Loser that somebody erroneously said that Bowie had written. He didn't. I'd written it. Bowie's writing, even then, was far more abstract and kind of... Uh, you know, I was the kind of the hippie type, but <laughs> and he has in his hand a copy of Weren't Born a Man, um, which, of course, Bowie at that time had just appeared on the cover of his album, was it Man Who Sold the World, in yeah. a dress. Yeah. And I was the first person, I think, globally to appear on the front cover in underwear because girls didn't do that in those days i'm dressed as a, i'm in a sort of black yeah is it, what, is stockings that a, a and suspenders is that right well i don't know what that is really. i don't know but angie bowie got it for me from janet riga's the famous right. french knicker shop and um gerard mankovic who did nearly all my covers for many many years it was you know and i got to use people like Rick Waitman, because Rick was doing stuff with Bowie. So we were in the same studios. We were in Trident. And he's such a, Rick is such a great session musician. Isn't he just I the mean, best? Really unbelievable. And, but I uh, had, um, you know, David Bowie had always said, I never call him David. I always call him Bowie it's because I know about 20 Davids. Yeah. And if you shout David in the street, <laughs> half them, they're all going to turn around. So Bowie always said he wanted to produce my third album. And in fact, when it came to, which is Weren't Born a Man, and when it came to doing it, suddenly his albums were starting to take off in America. So it became very clear that he wouldn't have the time. Mm. So that was when Ronson, lovely Rono, Mm. was actually stepped in and said, yeah, let me do it because I've always wanted to work with string arrangements and things. So although we were all in the studios at the same time, I mean, not at literally recording at the same time the same kind of guys were moving around on that album I had Bobby Keys who played with the Stones on sax Mm. Um, I had really great musicians actually it's a great roll call of musicians it's funny you should sort of like maybe have he said I'm not very theatrical which you know I'm sure he's right but then you (laughs) sort of think about a performance like what memories we make and what a great song I mean you really I'm amazed that you like do you know I wrote that I'd just gone, I'd gone with Gerard Mankovic and his family. I was in, 
they they were doing a film in Israel, and I suddenly got inspired because I mentioned that I was by at the Red Sea. So I must have written that in 1967. Because it's quite it was, an exotic saga that song. What what was going through your mind? Well, I met this tasty-looking guy standing by the beach in the re- on the Red Sea. I talked to him for half an hour and never saw him again. I think he was a uh, uh, he will never know that he was the inspiration <laughs> for a song, no. and he probably wasn't even called Michael. It, but it was the one song that in Mystique. Princess Margaret was always, I was always told, sing this is her favourite song, so I used to sing that over there. And it's one song I could do on my own, on strumming on my 12-string guitar. But on that, there's that Mother Don't Be Frightened. Well, in fact, the whole, that album and the one that came out afterwards, which was Ain't Gonna Play No Second Fiddle, Hmm. where I got really great musicians on that too, one of the world's best drummers, Simon Phillips. Hmm. He's on it. Um... They a company called Cherry Red have just put it out as a yeah. double composition compilation thing. That's right. Yeah. With a fabulous booklet, I mean, and a really well written booklet, very informative. And they mention it in it, in it, and I'd forgotten that I'd told the the man who wrote it that I'd written Mother Don't Be Frightened because I'd just taken some acid at seventeen, well sixteen probably, and I didn't want to bump into my mother. Um, oh wow! Because. I wouldn't want my mother to be upset because she wouldn't have understood. Did but, you write it while you were coming up or afterwards? No, no, afterwards. I think I arrived back at the house, you know, probably hanging at six in the morning or seven in the morning. And I must have bumped into her. And then I thought, I, I can't remember if I actually told. Um, I think I probably did. I had a very good relationship with my parents. I could say anything to mm. them. And even even up until when my mother in her 80s, I used to take her with me to India and Mustique uh, when her yeah. my stepfather had died. She, you know, I've always been best friends with my parents. I was very lucky. But then I kind of come from a slightly weird school of thought. I kind of believe that you choose your parents mm. in or, when you're born in order to learn what you need to know. Well, I think your family, and uh, excuse me for my rather reductive use of language, but uh, <laughs> some of my, my favourite, often my favourite kinds of people are sort of kind of kind of quite posh progressive people who uh, right. who sort of don't really take <laughs> the, you know the kind of the the kind of conventions and demarcations uh, that most people observe too seriously no so your family sounds like a hoot anyway um we'll come on to india later yes, i really okay. i really want to um but i want to you kind of the, there were a few years where you didn't make any records, I think, and then I think Blue One was sort of commenced. Uh, well, yes, that's because when the main man and Bowie were in litigation, I physically was not allowed to record to in, for anyone for about four from about nineteen seventy four was ain't gonna play no second fiddle till nineteen eighty. I'd gone to Austria by this time because I could I'd start in a musical called Mardi Gras written by Melvin Bragg. It was sort of and I'd got the part as a black blues singer because there weren't any black singers who could sing the blues and some of the black artists in the show complained. What did you actually have to I sang a blues. I sang blues. At the audition, it was for da- um, Howard and Blakely, who started Dave D- Dozy Beaking the Contitch. <laughs> and I had no idea. Marsha Hunt was in this show, PPR. A lot of people were in this show, mm-hmm. but I was the only real blues singer. I went, my audition was I went on and sang Organ Grinder. It's not the organ, but the way you grind. I, I played the piano for it because I can only do bordello music. That's all I can play these days on the piano. And I got the part and... Uh, I um, 
I so I had to do shows, stage shows, in because they couldn't they could stop my money. I couldn't even pick up one penny for a year of performing there because it all had to go into escrow for the litigation wow. went on. So I fl- I kind of fled to Vienna in 1980 and started singing with a very fantastic local blues band called the Mojo Blues Band. Did some recordings with them, hmm. just some tracks, but then. Um, and then somehow the litigation was sorted out and i and i and i realized that in order to get out of this world of glam and cleavage and high heels and things which would have a sell by date eventually i could see the writing was on the wall i came back and i met our lovely Führer, as I call him, Ted Carroll, when he had his stall in Camden Town and, and before he got the shop of Rock On. Um, and I always, I've always loved Ace, but I met him and used to see him and used to buy a lot of LPs off him. And, and then I came and saw him and I said, listen, I want to do an album with all the rudest blues songs, the sex songs that I can find from the 20s, 30s and 40s. And I want to call this LP Blue Job. And Ted said, "Sign here." Yeah, well, you would, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, I, a, I like humour in music. It's a great. It's a great. And what strikes me about that record is that it's a sort of either by accident or by design. You know, you, this it was a sort of subtle updating of the blues in the in a similar way to actually what BB um, King was doing at the time. And if you sort of listen to songs like Where Blue Begins, you sort of do sound a little bit, with the band as well, the kind of musicians that he was working, you do sound a little bit like a sort of female B.B. King in that kind of sonic postcode. Yeah, but I never, I've always felt that I've been somewhat ignored in this country. I can't really get arrested in England. I think I'm the only artist that's never been on Jules Holland, for example. Every single other person has been on it. I mean, and so much stuff goes on it with people that can't sing, Mm. which astounds me. But uh, I just stick to what I do. I I love the blues. And I I grew up listening to, you know, from the age of 11, listening to Bessie Smith. Or, you know, these, these women and men were singing about sex and you know, my man or my woman's left me or I want a man with or woman with meat shaking on her bones and I like the sense of humour. That's why I don't do jazz. I don't sing standards. I mean, I will sing St. Louis Blues, but that's only because nobody else can even attempt it. But I, I, I like doing stuff that nobody else does. And I couldn't have got away with songs like Big Ten Inch or, or, or Organ uh, Grinder or... or Big Fat Mamas Are Back in Style is another one. Yeah, I couldn't of... have done that when I was 17. No. If I had a son come on If You're Coming when I was 17, it might have just sounded uh, pornographic. Yeah. But now I'm in my dotage. Nobody can tell me what to do or not to do. Quite right, too. Yeah, and they never um, did, actually. No, I'm not surprised. I wouldn't <laughs> dream of telling you what to do. Um, so... Um, it's funny because there is this wonderful kind of earthy side to what you do, but also there is this whole other sort of spiritual side to what you do, which, uh, you know, you've really sort of nurtured and you've kind of brought lots of people in. Um, tell me a little bit about the sort of epiphany that led to these um, frequent visits to India. And uh, Well, okay, it's but it, the the... 
my love of Indian music, of course, started in the 60s mm. because you'd, I used to go with Jimmy Page when he was just a session musician. We'd go and see Ustad Vilyat Khan or Ala Raka playing with Ravi Shankar or yeah. these people. And I remember the Yardbirds, I think, were the first band to ever have a sitar used in a single. Oh, yeah. I can't remember which track it was, but anyway, 60s. So then I suppose... About nearly 40 years ago, I happened to read a book. I mean, I've always been interested in spiritual things, uh, not conventional spirituality, but, mm. you know, kind of slightly off-the-wall stuff. And somebody passed a book to me called Man of Miracles, which is about a, a very famous saint in India called Sai Baba, who's yeah. actually physically left his body about five years ago. Um, and I thought, this looks pretty interesting, and I leapt on a plane... And um, three weeks later, which was something I never normally do, and he ignored me for 12 years. But I used to go every year for one or two weeks, and I'd sit and just listen to the music that was going on. When you say he ignored you, were you sort of trying to get his attention? Or? No, I mean, you've got to imagine sitting among 20,000 people, yeah. you're just in a huge crowd. And I... But I kept loving this music, this mm. thing called budgeons, not to be confused with the supermarket, <laughs> and it's spelt very differently. No. Um, but it's sung in Sanskrit. And I like the, also the idea of music that's in Sanskrit, so that even if you don't understand all the words, it's the vibe. The mm. vibe gets to you. And I thought, if I can take these very traditional temple songs and make them slightly more kind of trippy, trancey, which is what I did, I actually changed my name to Third Man for three of the albums because I didn't want any blues fans picking up a record and going, oh, what's this? And whacking it on the turntable mm. and then going, hey, I don't like this shit or why is it in Sanskrit? But I, it was just, this must have been 1980-something. I was really convinced that world music was the, the way mm. at that time. It became the way, but I was unfortunately before my time. Mm. I tried to get one particularly well-known record company in America. They were interested. It was through Joe Boyd, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he said, yeah, we're interested. But his boss in America said, why is she singing in another language? <laughs> he didn't get it. So I never got a deal, sadly. So but You I, did get an audience with Cy Barber. Well, yes, that yeah, but it came after twelve years. Yeah, now, yeah. for those that don't know, Sai Baba is considered the greatest sort of uh, spiritual saint of his of his day, of his age, and um, he's the second incarnation. And there's the third one is apparently going to come any moment now, but I don't know when. Mm. And having been there for 12 years where I was always at the back because of my bad leg when I was caught in the avalanche, I couldn't sit up the front and you have to sit cross-legged for hours to wait for a famous personage such as Sai Baba to come out. So I was always up the back, and but listening to this music and I thought, hmm, this is amazing. And uh, after 12 years, I suddenly get a call saying, would you come and sing for his 70th birthday? He And I thought, because I'd just done my first Bhajan CD, I thought, he wants me singing in Sanskrit, marvellous. But no, I was told, no, he wants your Western music, which was quite difficult because I only, at that time, it was sort of when I was only doing sex songs in blues, you know, I was having fun <laughs> and you can't sing that in an ashram. What did you sing? Well, I rewrote, you know, Come off, come On If You're Coming. I actually wrote a Happy Birthday Baba song. <laughs> um, I, I wrote a song called I Sigh For You with a double meaning of the word sigh in a Chicago blues sort of style. So I kept it strictly to the blues. And for that week, 
they say there were a million people in the audience. That's bigger than Woodstock and Glastonbury. It's amazing to see that amount of crowd out there. They hadn't come to see me, I hasten to add. Still, though. But they had a, a week long of celebrations of all the biggest stars in India. And on the very last day, the final highlight... He chose to put me on. Nobody had ever heard blues there. Nobody. It took days for us to even find a drum kit. I was going to say, what what did you have for a band? Well, do you know, I asked my English band, the London Blues Band, I said to them, listen, do you want to come and play at an ashram? And um, you won't get paid. You can't eat meat. You can't drink or smoke. And half of them said no. I was actually quite shocked about it. But the guitarist who was in my band at that time, lovely Ed Dean, friend of Roger's upstairs here at Ace Records, Mm. um, he said yes. And the Austrian boogie piano player that I work with, he also said yes. And my then bass player, Adrian Stout, who plays in the band called the Tiger Lilies, he said yes. So And another Austrian. So the guys didn't know each other in the band. They'd never seen anything like it. And the moment we started up the blues... Sai Baba got up from the chair that he was on and got onto a swing, which is called a jeweler, and it's considered the high point for most Indians. And he's swinging, grooving, and enjoying the blues. Oh, my word. With probably 99% of the audience, the Indian, predominantly Indian audience, hating it because they wouldn't have known what on earth was going on. They expected the high point of his birthday to have some sort of Ravi Shankar type, some sort of holy and stuff. And you could, from where you were, you could see him on the swing, sort of. Oh yeah! So oh, you yes. were happy. Oh yeah, you know. I was quite happy. I mean, I since then I I have sung for nearly every birthday of his except for two when I was ill, um, in you... India. And it, it, he was. There are many clips on YouTube of him sort of sitting quite close to me on the stage while I'm <laughs> singing away. And like John Lennon and the Maharishi, didn't you ask him to <laughs> slip you the answer? Well, no, he, most people would go and see him on private interviews with shopping lists of questions like, you know, can you get a wife for my son or what should I, you know. And I never had any questions because I reckon that the true guru, he yeah. knows you better than you. I didn't need to ask him anything. But he did once say to me, do you want to ask me a question? And I just couldn't think of anything too intelligent. So I just said to him, well, what is the meaning of this meaning life? And he just said five words, and I do repeat this when it, whenever anyone asks me to go and talk about Sai Baba, which they do quite often. These five words are play the game, be happy. That's all we have to do in life. There's no point in getting stressed. Even when shit happens, we have to stay happy because being down doesn't help us. So he just said these five words to me, and I'm quite content with that. And in your day-to-day life, do you feel like do you find it... Maybe not easy, but do you, are you able to observe that edict? In my own life? Yeah. Mostly, yes. I mean, obviously, as I'm getting older, things are, you know, ache and pain. I don't play guitar anymore. I have slightly arthritic hands. Um, but I do, I swim every morning. So that, if you, and have done for years. Where uh, do you swim? I live, glory, glory, I live two minutes walk, one minute walk from a swimming pool in South Kensington. So I go there every morning at about 7.30 when the world is asleep. But I've always been an early bird because even from the age of 11 till 15 when I left school, I was up out as a newspaper delivery 
boy, I nearly said, a delivery person delivering newspapers. So I had my own money so I could buy my own drum kit and not get a bollocking from my parents. It was my money, so they couldn't tell me off. So I swim every morning and I'm mostly happy. You know, I, the guy that I was with for 38 years, but we had a rather strange relationship. He died last week. Now, okay, I was kind of tearful. You would have seen him. Sometimes he would come into Ace, but he lived in Vienna. He did all my CD covers and everything. And and I, I, I know how transient life is. I... Uh, you know, we, but we had a kind of rather odd relationship. Well, I'm, he I'm, lived I'm in staggered, though, that you're uh, that you're certainly on the face of it. Here you are talking to me, and you seem to be able to process these things. Well, I have to because I, you know, I can't fall to pieces. I, in fact, I was told he died five minutes before I was going on stage at the um, Skegness British Blues and Rock Festival last weekend, held in the glorious Butlins Holiday Camp. So I go from Butlins to Mustique. Yeah. You have to take everything in its stride. Yeah, I was sad. I mean, I, I cried at moments because I'll never find another CD and art maker, cover maker, and artist as good as him. Mm. He did all my Indian stuff. I did a book with him called Mirrors of Love, which also I made an album out of it, And but predominantly his artwork. Um, but he hadn't been well, and he didn't believe in exercise. So, you know, lifestyle does catch sure. up on with you later on. But I, I have to be... I have to stay happy because there's no point in being down, and eventually there's something good comes along. I mean, I am prepared that you know, aches and pains are going to get worse. Yeah. I'm prepared that men don't look at the older woman now. You know, when I was younger, I could turn heads and wolf whistles would be extracted along the street. And that was a lot of fun. But I remember seeing a, a joke in, I think it was The Spectator. And it was of a dumpy woman, age 55, pushing a shopping trolley through customs with a trolley loaded with heroin, cocaine, ecstasy, acid, everything. And it just said underneath, and this is Mary proving the theory that women over 55 are invisible. So I'm, it's, it's very true. <laughs> you may laugh, Pete, but it's sort of true. But I'm so pleased I'm not in that kind of the brainless younger era. I mean, where people watch Love Island, mm. um, which I had the misfortune to watch about five minutes of it. I don't get it. I'm too old school. So... Yeah. There's no point in being down. Well, you've written a song called Old School. It's on your new album. Yes, yes, yes. And actually, the words of that are absolutely how I kind of feel. But the guy that just died, Jörg Huber, the artist, but he's very famous in Vienna. I wrote for him also on the album, See You on the Other Side. Wow. Because... I've I've got to go to his funeral in two weeks' time. I mean, I may be sitting here quite chirpy now, and but he'll his first wife will be there, and his last girlfriend, and all the girlfriends in between. There'll be squads of women because he was pretty dynamic and he <coughs> was very popular. But I've always learnt from my mother, who grew up with my father, who was a bit of a serial womanizer, that if you want to make sure to be happy in life and your man strays, then become friendly with the other woman. Yeah. Because in the end, he will be elbowed out, and you will find you've got a really good friend. Some of my mother's best friends were my father's, mm. I can't say rejects, because they kind of had moved on from him. No. So I'm friends with all of Jörg Huber's ex-girlfriends. I love your use of the word dynamic in that context. <laughs> that will stay with me. Uh, I have to ask briefly. I, there never seemed like a good juncture at which to ask. 
the 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 avalanche that you were you, yeah. you were caught up in. Where were you? I was in Davos. It was right. before the economic forum ever went there, and I was just in the ladies' ski slalom. But I was going for the first time from juniors to the grown-ups, so I was only fifteen, and I got a very high number, which meant that the slalom course was very, very, um, very complicated. And the higher your number is, the more rutted the course is. And I'm looking at down at this course and. The sun is beating down. It's April because there are two types of avalanches. One that can kill you, which is usually around January or February when it's powder snow. Mm. And around April, it's already block hard. It's been hardened. Crystallized. And um, the whole... This slope was so steep and I'm thinking, holy shit, what am I doing here? And I hadn't taken off my skis to wax them. I was about to. And I thought somebody pushed me from behind. I was about to turn around and I turned around and the whole bloody mountain came down. 30 people went down in the avalanche and only two were totally buried. One of them was myself and another girl because I hadn't got my skis off. If you have no skis on, you can sort of ride it. So my mother, she was one of the judges to make sure that two skis go through the gates. So how, how long were you buried? Not too sure to this day, I don't know, because when the whole mountain stopped and the screaming and the rumbling stopped, there was complete silence. And because it was darkness, too, I didn't know if my eyes were open or closed. And I couldn't move one hand to pinch myself because I was pinned down by the snow. But because this kind of snow leaves bits of air to come in because it's not powdered snow it's these blocks that's how i survived and mercifully i had a very distinctive set of ski sticks in those days i was always a bit of a show-off and one of them had been ripped from my hand and coincidentally was sticking right above me not that anyone knew this but my mother who was clawing her way up through the debris was sort of saying where's my baby you know because i was one of the two that had was not visible they got to the ski stick and then they started digging so i don't really know how long i was out whether i was unconscious or not i don't know but i do remember in the silence saying to myself am i dead is this what death is like and then i thought logically i can't be dead if i'm thinking am i dead because if you're dead i guess you don't think you know or not no i think therefore i am yes exactly yeah so I always had a bad leg and many I had to leave Jesus Christ Superstar after I did the first year being the first Mary Magdalene in 72 and I had to leave because I simply my leg couldn't take being on the rake of the stage was quite right. a slope singing I don't know how to love him every night so I literally left and the very next day after my one year's contract went straight into hospital to have the first knee operation since then I had four operations i've now got two new knees i'm titanium and i can't be a drug smuggler because i make the bells ring every time i go through at the airports no unless that cartoon is true of course oh yes that's true oh don't worry i am invisible yes but not in a security thing um so um dana i I feel like i've detained you here for long enough (laughs) uh, before before we say our goodbyes um I guess the next thing, the the next immediate thing then is for you to get ready for Mystique one more time. Yes, but it's not like it used to be. The island is so changed. Did you, know? you take Frankie Miller there once? 
No, I took no, Frank, no, that was Frank, India, wasn't it? Frankie came with me to yes. India, and I put one of his songs on one of my albums. There'll always be a new tomorrow, because you know he's in a wheelchair and yeah, a yeah. lovely, lovely yeah. Frankie. So he he used to, he was the one that came with me to when I was doing the Dylan concert and uh, in Bournemouth, I think we were. And uh, he came in the wheelchair with Annette, his lovely wife. And mm. he, and I always used to stick a picture of Sai Baba on my dressing room door. And Dylan said, oh, I know who that is. And everyone in the... Mu musicians, are, if they're curious, yeah. should know where a spiritual answer can lie because you're going to need it when you get older. Absolutely. Here speaks the voice of experience. Not just musicians, obviously. Yeah. All of us, really. Um, Danny Gillespie, uh, I've had a, a wonderful... Has it been an hour? I don't know how long it's been. I think it's, it's been. probably over. Anyway, thanks for uh, putting up with me for however long it's been. Well, thank you, but we didn't touch on millions of subjects, but another time. I hope so. I yeah. hope so. Um, it's inevitable, really. Time goes by so quickly. You've been listening to the uh, Ace Record podcast with me, Pete Perfides, and of course, uh, my companion for this one has been Danny Gillespie. See you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. For more excellent music, you can scoot over to the Ace Records website, www.acerecords.co.uk, for all the wonderful music you could possibly need. <laughs>